The reading this morning is taken from Galatians chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 23. Children of God, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up in the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. John's going to come and speak to us. And uh, I pray for you before you start and for us. Father, we do thank you for, for John and for the words he's got for us this morning. Father, I pray that as he speaks to us and as we listen, we will know more of what it means to be a children, to be children of God. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much, Steve. Good morning. Nice to see a nice big crowd for our joint congregation, and I'm sure that means a lot to Ursula as she has this special day uh, this morning. So we all support her in what she brings to us today. Children of God, what a wonderful description of our humanity. We read in the first letter of John, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. But does it apply to everybody or just to born-again Christians? As far as the Bible is concerned, the answer, perhaps rather puzzlingly, is both. Let me try to explain. Listen to Paul preaching to the Greeks in the marketplace at Athens, recorded in Acts 17. God is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are also his offspring. <clears throat> To call the pagan Greeks the offspring, or, or God's offspring, is very close to calling them God's children. And indeed, it's a fair deduction from the description of our creation at the beginning of the Bible that we do have a special relationship to God, since men and women are there said to be made in God's image. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Today, it's become rather a commonplace among presenters of nature programs on television to emphasize the unity of human beings with the rest of the creation. And there's a, an important truth in that because it makes us realize we have no more right to exist and to exploit the earth than any other creature God has made. But that's only half the story. 
According to the biblical account of creation, human beings are uniquely made in God's image. What does that mean? Not, of course, that we literally look like God in the same way a newborn baby may be said to be just like his father. For one thing, God is neither male nor female. The whole arrangement of gender is part of the physical creation. To be made in the image of God means that we share God's moral responsibility for the care of his creation. The second chapter of Genesis puts it like this. Humans were placed in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. That was our God-given mission. And that's what's involved in being given dominion by God over the other creatures, as described in the first chapter of Genesis. It's not a God-given license to exploit the earth for our own ends, as is often asserted by some who haven't read their Bibles carefully enough. If it were true that we were just a part of creation and no more, then we have no more moral responsibility than any other creature for the welfare of the planet, the conservation and survival of other species, or the sharing of the Earth's resources with them. It would be just the survival of the fittest. But we do see that we have a special place because we are the ones who can do something about the condition of the Earth. Our moral responsibility comes from being made in God's image. And if that is the case, then of course it applies equally to all human beings, not just to those who call themselves Christians. And in that sense, we're all children of God. Behind our vocation as human beings, we find the constant care and love of God himself, who loves everything he's made, and he longs to see everyone fulfill the purpose for which he created them. But that's where we run into problems, because to be given moral responsibility for something means that we have a choice. We can cooperate with God in his care of creation, or we can use it for our own ends. We don't have to search far to find plenty of evidence that human beings do often treat the world as their own sweet shop or their own playground. Jesus told a parable about a landowner who let out a vineyard to some tenants, expecting to receive his share of the crop as rent when the harvest came. But the tenants sent the landlord's messengers packing until finally the landowner sent his son. The the tenants then decided to kill the son, thinking that then the vineyard would be theirs. But why on earth would they imagine that? The absurdity of it is obvious. But we're meant to see from that in Jesus' parable that we behave in the very same way with God's creation even to the extent of being prepared to kill his son. What then shall be our fate? We read in the first chapter of John's Gospel that Christ came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. 
Children, born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So now we have here a different message. The tenants on earth who rejected the owner's son need a new birth. They made to be, to be made children of God. They have proved made to be children of God. They've proved to be rebellious children. They need to be given back the right to be the children of God. Not that God has rejected them. They have rejected him. And that, of course, is how Jesus explains it in his famous parable of the prodigal son. The son has grabbed his share of the inheritance, left his home and his father, and lived a self-indulgent life until the resources his father gave him run out. Then reality hits him. Down in the gutter, or rather in the pigsty, he realizes he has got to go home. But what sort of reception will await him? As he prepares his speech, he knows he needs to tell his father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father is waiting for him, longing to see his returning figure. There's no question that he's still to be treated as a true son. But he's now a son who has been born again. This is how Jesus ends, the, ends that part of the parable. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Many children have been a grief to their parents. But that doesn't mean they cease to be their offspring. The deranged man named Omar who shot all those people in America last week, has brought shame to his parents. But he's still their son. If he had survived, he might have found repentance and in due course been restored to his home. And then there's Thomas Mayer, the murderer of the Yorkshire MP Joe Cox. He also is some mother's son. But I've omitted the fact that Omar and in due course, Thomas Mayer, will have to pay for, for their crimes, possibly spend many years in prison, and in Omar's case, even have paid with his life because Florida still has the death sentence. But in the parable of the prodigal son, there's no mention of any punishment. His elder brother wants justice, but the father is just happy to have his son back. And so this presses a question. Is Jesus telling us that God doesn't care about justice? Now at last we come to the reading we had this morning from Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now we heard from our Pew Bibles that Galatians 3.26 says, you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. But unfortunately, that isn't what Paul wrote. A few years ago, we replaced our previous New International Version Bibles with this new inclusive version, which seeks to replace translations of texts which assume reference to men is sufficient to include women. 
And there are many passages where there is a change for the better. But unfortunately, it's not what Paul wrote here, and it completely misses the point. Paul wrote, not you are all children of God, but you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, and you have, put, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Converts in the early church, when they were baptized, were given a white robe to put on, symbolizing that they had now been clothed with Christ and his righteousness. They were newborn as sons of God because the Son of God now lived in them. They had put on Christ. They were identified with Christ. No matter whether they were male or female, they were now all sons of God. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. This has nothing to do with race, status or sex. Paul's message is that only by being one with Christ, the Son of God, can we stand justified before God because Christ has made the one perfect sacrifice for the sins of the whole human race. His offering for sin has to be our offering because we have nothing else with which to make amends with God. Paul put it like this in the previous chapter of Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The result is that when good God looks upon us, he sees his Son in us. And of course that has some tremendous implications for anyone who dares to call themselves a Christian. It means we're called to live like the Son of God, as children of God, truly showing forth what Christ showed to the world. And in closing, I just want to consider briefly with you three consequences of our status as God's children. The first is that this makes us, the whole worldwide church, into the family of God. All who confess Christ as Lord and Savior are bound together in this common faith. If it doesn't bind us together, there's something badly amiss in our fellowship. Today is a day of rejoicing for this part of God's family as we welcome Ursula's new ministry among us as a priest. We pray that God will strengthen and use her in her new role of bringing us together, expressed in her presiding at the Lord's table for the first time this morning. So we're bound together around God's table as one in Christ. The second point is that we have been made partners with God himself. Just as many family firms advertise themselves as Jones and Sons electricians or Smith and Sons family butchers, so as sons of God, we are called to carry on the family business. That business is working for God's kingdom 
a mission to bring the whole human race to hear his voice and know his saving love in Christ and to work to establish God's peace and justice everywhere. And the final point is one which Paul expresses beautifully in this letter to the Galatians. Since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Elsewhere, he refers to the riches of our inheritance, all that is ours in Christ, given to us as sons of our heavenly father. The prodigal son wanted his inheritance early. He couldn't wait for his father to die. And the father didn't refuse him. The fullness of our inheritance in Christ is already made over to us. But we must wait to know all that that means, not when our father dies because God is eternal, but when we die. That will be the day when we trust we shall hear Christ say, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world then we shall truly know what it means to be the children of God. Amen.